Welcome back to Crazy Faith Talk. I'm Sarah. I'm Steve. And I'm Erica. And uh, we're grateful for you to be with us here again today. We're going to be concluding our series we've been looking at for about the last month or so um, in a, a series looking at Christian nationalism, one of those topics that seems uh, maybe sadly to be emerging in increasing importance for important conversation about in, in our uh, wider culture. We've taken a look over the course of these weeks at a working definition. Uh, what's the difference between, say, healthy patriotism and love of one's country versus something more dangerous or, or um, insidious like uh, nationalism? Uh, we talked about biblical uh, precedents for how um, both ancient Israel and the New Testament community looked at uh, their relationship between power structures and being the community of faith. We looked at places in the last 2,000 years of history where uh, this this, uh, merging of uh, Christianity and power structures can go wrong. We've taken a look at contemporary examples. And now where are we going to go with conversation today? So today we're going to look at what it means to actually live out our Christian lives in a way that does not turn into Christian nationalism. Um, so, you know, what are some positive examples of the Christian church um, living out its faith, not only in our own country, but across the globe and how we can live into that and um, increase that expectation that Christ has put on us to, to live a global faith and not just a faith that only reaches our national borders. I, I think that's a really helpful way of framing things. And I'm glad um, not to pat ourselves on the back, but I'm grateful that in the way we're having this conversation, we don't just have unending criticism of here's a bunch of bad stuff. Now you're on uh, on your own to figure out what the alternative would be, but at least to, to invite uh, our conversation here to spark. Okay. If we want to avoid dangers of wedding Christianity to power, uh, what would it instead look like to do something positive? I'm, I'm glad we're at least going there. And I'm glad you framed it that there are positive ways for Christians to be present in the world, that we aren't just a see in heaven where everything gets worked out uh, kind of a club, but how do we live out our faith in ways now that Mm -hmm. seek the good of others, not only within national boundaries, but across them? Thank you for setting the table that way. So when I was a seminarian and very much during, well, I was a seminarian as well as now, my favorite Bible chapter in the whole book of the Bible uh, was Revelation 21. Oh, I've heard that and before. so I Right, right. So I did a big paper. It was like for Greek or something um, or a New Testament class where I had to like really parse some of the Greek. And so I picked something from Revelation 21, which is um, Revelation 21 verse three, which is uh And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, see, the home of God is among mortals. He will dwell with them and they will be his peoples. And so I really took a big, hard, long look at peoples because it's plural. And I don't and I think most people don't expect it to be plural. But um, the gist of my paper was that God intended for us. Well, a recognizes that we are different groups of people but that 
all of these groups, God is going to be their God and they will be God's peoples. Um, so, so it's this recognition of these different groups, all different, all belong to God. And some biblical scholars will argue that these peoples are actually different faith traditions that, you know, there's the Christian group, obviously. And then there's also the, the, the Muslim groups and the Jewish groups and the Buddhist groups and all of the different faith world faith groups and that God is claiming all of them in this moment. Um, but you could also argue according to other biblical scholars that there are also different nations, right? There is the Rome empire, the Roman empire. There is the, you know, now modern day, you know, there's the Americans, there's the Italians, there's a Puerto Rico. Well, Puerto Rico is now part of America, but you know, there's, you know, such all the groups in Central America and South America, North America, Europe, Asia, Africa. And so however we, we end up dividing ourselves because that's what we tend to do as humans. God is saying, no, 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 enough of this. You're all mine. I will be your God. You will be my peoples. And so I, I just keep coming back to that in my brain of we, we may divide ourselves and I think that we can have a whole conversation about whether or not we should be doing that, but that's not what God intends, that God intends for all of us to be God's peoples. And I, I appreciate your grounding that in the, the really hopeful vision at the end of Revelation so that there's a sense of not just by sheer practical, well, we have to learn to get along because we have to, but no, God's vision is for in new creation even. That, and I think that's an important idea too, that in, in the book of Revelation that envisions when God finally has the chance to put all things right, God doesn't make us all homogenous. Um, that instead there's this diversity of peoples and, and even early in the book of Revelation, there's this beautiful image and I think it's, it's chapter seven of this multitude of all nations and language and tribes and cultures who are there uh you know and are clearly among the redeemed of God as well who wash their robes in the blood of the lamb that if if it's important for God to have no only one national group or one national identity is I is to be identified with God and God's people that would be the chance to say nope and this you know the redeemed are all from this country no and that's not the vision it's instead every language and nation and group and and uh culture are represented there um and and recognizing if that's the vision then clearly god isn't opposed to there being multiple nationalities or that god's only uh, identified with one country or one nation or empire or something like that i remember when i was in um uh, in seminary, in my internship, I can remember uh, hearing somebody at that congregation say that, that for them, and they said this a little tongue in cheek, the reason for us to learn songs, worship and praise songs and hymn songs in other languages was so that we'll know the words when we get to glory. That sort of that idea of a reminder that not every hymn, you know, is going to be in English there in glory, uh, even though we sometimes like to imagine, you know, the, the God must really love my favorite hymns and or God only likes the ones, you know, for my tradition. Um, but no, we're going to be the ones learning as well. And in the back of my mind that that's helpful as a rule of thumb not just for singing but like okay if the the reality we are being pulled toward is one where there are multiple peoples from different nationalities and tribes and language and, and countries and cultures uh and that's 
part of where God is pulling us, then even now, not just we should be learning the songs of one another's traditions, but also that means we should recognize that God is operating in other places, not just mine. Uh, and, that, and that part of my calling then is to seek the good, not just of my particular local group of people, me and my group first, but of all peoples. To me, that also gets at a, a really important idea that we, we raised in our very, very first episode in this series. And uh, one of the things I, I, I found really helpful was the distinction, I can't remember which of us said it first, but th- there's a difference between being able to say, I like the country that I come from and here's things that are good about it, and still being able to say, but also there are other good things about other countries as well. And that's healthy to be able to say good things here, but also you like your country and you like your mountains and you like your rivers and you like, you know, your traditions that that's not only okay, that's, that's good. That's healthy. Um, And if we can see that my good is caught up with the good of my neighbor, whether next door or the next town over or across a border into another country or across an ocean on the other side of the world. If we have a sense of my good and my well-being is caught up with theirs, now we're maybe closer to being on track to the, the, uh, a helpful or faithful way of living out our faith as people uh, who come from particular nations, but also see God at work in other nations too. Maybe too, we could even note that there are some practical, uh, concrete examples from uh, the last 2,000 years of Christian history for how um, sometimes Christians have done that well. I mean, we, we spent a, a fair amount of time the last several episodes pointing out ways that we've gotten it wrong. When, when we end up getting wedded to the empire, whether it was Constantine back in the 300s or the German state church during the, the Nazi regime or a whole host of other times we've gotten it wrong. But what are places where uh, Christians have created movements that were able to do that, to see their own good and the well-being of themselves tied up with others, especially even across other boundaries or lines. So one of the more recent ones for me, and I mean, there are probably some more that are even more recent than this, but this is like 20th century recent, is the, the community that Henry Nouwen put together called Larch. Oh, I think yeah. I'm saying that right. Um, I, I never took French, so I don't know. Um, but it was a community to help those with disabilities. Um, my understanding, mostly physical, but there, there could be you know, other disabilities included in that. Um, but this is now a worldwide movement. I mean, it started, I believe, in France, but now it is in Canada and the States and South America. It's on every continent. Um, and they do this because they're Christians and they feel called to help folks who otherwise may not be able to help themselves. And so the idea there is not just that in any given community, they're helping people right around them, but the idea that then that model can be copied and Mm -hmm. imported and planted in other places as well. Like that, that, that sounds, and there's a sense of that it's not strictly within a single nation and and my guess is also that it's open ecumenically to different branches of the christian faith community as well that that even though now and of course is famous coming out of roman catholic tradition um it's 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 not uh sectarian in that regard of like oh i'm sorry you're baptist sorry we don't help you or i'm sorry you're presbyterian no no help for you um but Mm -hmm. instead it is uh, uh broadly ecumenical as well as international and I'm not even sure, I've not done a whole lot of research into this. I've just, I've, I've done a lot of reading with Nowen. And so this community gets mentioned yeah. when you read Nowen's works. Um, but I'm assuming that like, 
not only is it not like, oh, you're Baptist, you can't be a part of it because this is a Catholic organization. I don't think faith is necessarily a part of right. the community. I mean, it's it's the basis for why the community was formed. Right. But it's not like you have to be a Christian to be a part of this. Like we are here to help you regardless of your faith background, mm-hmm. you know, whether you are Christian, Catholic, Protestant, or buddhist or muslim or hindu or 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 atheist like yeah the whole point is because we are christians and because we have been called to help then we're going to do what our god and our savior calls us to do Mm -hmm. regardless of your religious beliefs your background those kind of things i think you've hit on something and we've kind of danced around this over this series but maybe that's it's helpful to to sharpen and say it clearly like that that at its worst, uh, Christian nationalism has a way of saying, I, I will seek the good of other people if they meet my criteria because they're like mm-hmm. me enough. You know, they're my nationality, my brand of Christianity. And we kind of talked before how sometimes those are explicit and sometimes it's just kind of implicit, like, you know, my kind of person, you know, um, and often how that sort of fits a particular cookie cutter. But that a faithful um, way of engaging faith and public life turns that inside out and says, it's not because you are enough like me, but because I'm called to follow Jesus and Jesus sends me to help and serve all people, then I'm doing this because of that's what Jesus calls me to do because of who I am and whose I am that I'm called to help serve and love. And I want you to, I invite you to be a part of that work if you want to, but you don't have to meet a litmus test of sameness mm-hmm. or like-mindedness uh, or say nationality-ness or culture for, for, for you to be worthy of my help. To me, it feels like while it, it, that's a really helpful 20th century example, it's maybe worth noting too that even that 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 approach isn't novel to the recent history. But like I think oh, you can fair. find traces of that, at least that same kind of thinking in even say in the the life of the early church, like in the Book of mm-hmm. Acts. One of the I, I can remember being surprised when I was in college and seminary discovering this plot line that I had missed growing up, but like the back half of Acts and a bunch of Paul's letters, they're going through a famine in Jerusalem. And Paul, of course, traveling all across the the empire to places that are very much not Jewish and not Judean, but he's going to folks uh, who are largely Gentile converts and saying, hey, we need to help raise money for helping out those people out in Jerusalem. They've got a famine. Food prices are through the roof and we need to help them. Um, and so he would take up a collection and then, you know, hey, hey, Corinthians, would you please donate some money? Hey, Macedonians, you know, whoever he's visiting. And then part of his missionary journeys included not just going out to other people to bring the gospel to them, but getting those people support so he could bring it back to the people going through famine in Jerusalem. And these are people who had never met and would never meet this side of glory. I mean, we, we sometimes forget too in this era of international communication that we could be talking you know across hundreds or thousands of miles instantly that these people would have known each other but this is like paul saying hey people who you've never met who speak different languages and who you will never meet this side of glory they need your help not because of what you can do for them or you know they can do for you but would you please help them and there was that model even in the early church that wasn't limited to national boundaries and it wasn't paul saying hey these are fellow judeans or fellow you know uh they're like you but simply we need to help them they're going through this difficult time i want to then at least lift up something that i think you brought up really helpfully sarah a couple of episodes ago and you talked about um that there can be sometimes a danger, especially as people who are our leaders in Christian communities, like pastors are. So here we are. Um, 
that sometimes the temptation can be, well, I don't want to be advocating uh, for you know Christian nationalism, and so therefore the temptation or the the implicit pressures you can never say anything that has anything to do with public life. Just keep it all spiritual and only say things that have to do with church life and going to heaven, and never say anything that uh, impacts public life. Uh, and that feels like no, that's 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 a ditch on that side of the road we want to avoid. And so maybe we could say that that the Christian community is called to address uh, the 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 good of our common life. Uh, but that's different than just keeping within the boundaries of one nation or even saying it's always going to be keep putting one political party in power. Could I ask, since you had mentioned this before, Sarah, are there ways that you as a rule of thumb for yourself sort of help navigate where are the boundaries or where are the guideposts for you in discerning what things, how do I know where's, where's some, uh, somewhere that's helpful to speak up? Where are places where I put guardrails on uh, what, what, and, and we even talked a little bit before about like what things, what, what the venue is for speaking, what we say publicly from the pulpit, what things we say in individual con- conversation, what things we say on social media, uh, how, how do you help navigate those waters? Uh, for me, it's all about context. Like, I can say things now in the pulpit that I wouldn't have been able to say in my last call because I know the people who are sitting in the pews and I know how that's going to land on their ears. Um, But yeah, my, my general rule of thumb is I talk about things that affect the people in the pews. And sometimes it's very personal. It's affecting them because they you know, it's in their lives, but sometimes it's also just affecting them because they're hearing it on the news and they're grieving on behalf of somebody else, you know? So like, Mm -hmm. if it's affecting the people who I'm speaking to, I need to address it. And sometimes that can be best addressed in a sermon because, you know, give a sermon every week. Um, Sometimes though, it's better to address it in individual conversations uh, or, you know, at a Bible study or during coffee hour, you know, so that that way it can be more of a dialogue and it's not just me speaking and they have to listen and then they don't get a chance to respond, you know, so it's going to depend on context a lot. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. How about for you, Erica, how do you find yourself uh, navigating questions of where where is it helpful to to speak up where is it helpful to say uh this is, is not my place or this is out of my wheelhouse or how, how do you how do you navigate those things I, I agree a lot with sarah and you know there are certain things that you can say from the pulpit coming into a, a new appointment i don't know what those things are quite yet um <laughs> <laughs> uh, i don't know my people well enough to, to be able to do that um but you know i I, I do a lot of it through casual conversation or through studies. Um, when topics like that get brought up in a Bible study, um, whether it's on topic or not, you know, we might um, spend some time. Okay, let's address this issue. Let's talk about this. Let's see where everybody stands on this and and look at it from a biblical perspective. Um, but it, it it's definitely it's it's definitely context based um, mm-hmm. because. There are certain people that if I say certain things in front of them, it's just going to shut them down mm. and they're not going to want to talk to me where I can say the same thing to another group of people and they're like, oh yeah, yeah, you know, and, sure. you know, we can agree and we can, you know, so it's, um, 
it's getting to know your audience. Sure, sure. Really well. And and not saying that you hide it until you get to know your audience, but just being cautious. Sure. And I also really resist posting on social media quickly. Mm, mm-hmm. Like yeah. I do occasionally post things on social media that is addressing, you know, either gun violence or, um, you know, whatever, you know, racism, whatever the, the to- topic is, but I don't, I don't typically like post quickly because I know that on my social media, I'm followed by both parishioners and family members and parishioners who are from previous calls and like it's a wide range of people on a political mm-hmm. spectrum and religious spectrum. Mm-hmm. And so I don't want to quickly post something and then turns out that I like posted too quickly and I didn't like have all my facts and um, I didn't have a good response yet. And then, you know, cause social media is like this weird, weird thing where some people will engage with it and other people won't and it's super passive they're just scrolling Mm -hmm. um and but it's not a good place i think for dialogue i think it's a good place to get out information um it's a good place to have prayers occasionally like especially in the wake of gun violence but it's not a good place for dialogue Mm-hmm. And so I try to be very careful about what and how I post on my social media, knowing that it's not a good place for dialogue. You have just sparked an idea in my head, and this is going to be one of those half-formed thoughts. So again, feel free to throw rocks at me if this it delves into heresy. Um, but um, I was thinking about the the distinction both of you made between places where dialogue and nuance and back and forth can happen and places that are more like a one directional megaphone. And it makes me think a little bit in my own traditions history, uh, Lutherans are, are uh, raised knowing the story of Martin Luther posting the 95 theses on the church door. And sometimes we forget that was an invitation to conversation. I mean, it, it was theological debate, but that, that wasn't the end. It wasn't just like, I'm going to put my screed up here and I'm right and you're wrong. But like, here's things I want to talk about. Here's the debating points that I I think we need to have a conversation about let's do it who wants to engage with me on these things and let's arrive at what we think the the truth is and that posting them up on the church door was an invitation uh even if it was a little bit provocative but a an invitation to public conversation and to that kind of dialogue and if we maybe see uh social media in a similar way like the church door in wittenberg that like if you think that's the end of a conversation and you just posting something without nuance or sort of blurring something out is the end of a conversation. And then everyone would go, oh, well, I saw somebody's post. Therefore, I've been persuaded. You are sorely mistaken about how useful or how to effectively use social media. But if those can be the entry points to, hey, here's stuff that we need to have conversation about. And then we also provide the venue of, uh, hey, we're going to be doing this series on uh, whatever it is, or we're going to be talking about uh, in a Bible study or, you know, like, so that, that has a way of saying, here's the topic. We want to engage on this rather than just hiding because it's uncomfortable. But now we're going to create a forum where there can be the dialogue, the pushback, the back and forth. And it isn't all monologue that might be a helpful way of reclaiming a rightful role of social media in uh, the midst of how we deal with public issues. Yes, definitely. Because I think, I think dialogue is possible on social media. 
but it's so yeah. difficult because you start getting where you just want to speak and you don't want to listen. Yeah. And because it, it starts becoming harder to recognize that the person that you're conversing with is another person. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you're quicker on social media to like, don't have empathy. Like it, you're, it's quicker that that disconnect is so much faster on social yeah. media. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, I think ideally, yes, that that conversation quickly be moved off of social media Mm -hmm. so that there is some sort of face-to-face, even if it's just through a screen, because then it's easier to recognize the humanity in each other. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We don't have a sarcasm or sarcasm and angry, uh, you know, we don't have fonts that, you know, put those things across on social media. Right. And so there's so much that you just lose, um, in communication because what 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 do they say 80 90 percent of communication is body language <laughs> right and, and non-verbal yeah. you know so and like you said sarah you people turn into for lack of a better word box on social media you know it's just it's a voice you know on the, out of nowhere even if you know the person you know you forget that like oh yeah i know this person I've been friends with this person for a long time. Like mm-hmm. they are, they're a real person. They're not just some yeah. Yeah. stranger, you know, typing odd things on a, on a keyboard. And yeah. that seems especially important, especially if you are of the perspective that our Christian calling is to attend to and care for the needs of other people simply grounded because of their humanity and not mm-hmm. based on their like-mindedness or sameness to us that if that's the position we're trying to articulate or trying to advocate from or speak from we have to model it in the ways we engage with people too and so it's fair to say we need to have a conversation on x or y or z it may not be an easy or fun conversation and it may be provocative but we need to have it here are means for that to happen and if you want to be a part of the conversation here is where it will be i think that that maybe is a helpful way of using social media in a helpful way, but also limiting it so that it doesn't, we don't think we're accomplished but changing the world by just posting angry things. <laughs> right. Yeah, social media is good for a lot of things, but also here be dragons. Yeah. 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 That's, that's a, that's, that's a, a good, good way to say it. Um, and, and maybe also as a reminder that just saying things you're angry about is not actually improving things for anybody. Um, and sure, those can be places where you, begin to plant ideas that raise new questions or new thoughts in people's minds. But even that by itself is not the end of a process that that is, you know, way, 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 way early on, rather than actually helping feed hungry people or give shelter to Mm -hmm. people who are in need of shelter. And if that's if the idea is, how do we seek the common good, then just angry posts is, is not terribly helpful toward actually accomplishing the common good. And it's not just on social media, though, too, like, when we're talking about living out the Christian faith, we have a tendency, and it's not just us as Christians, it's, it's humanity in general, to talk about them yeah, um, and categorize people in various groups, whether it be by politics or abilities or disabilities or theology or whatever it may be. Um, and, and so then we tend to lose the humanity of folks on and off social media, even when we're face-to-face with them. Like if you're working at a food bank somewhere, you know, we can look at the folks that we are serving at the food bank as them, those folks that, you know, get categorized as lazy or, you know, taking advantage of the welfare system. 
those kind of things. And you're seeing them face to face, but they're still losing their humanity. Yeah, yeah. Um, it, I'm as I'm listening to both of these shows. There's two uh, parallel quotes that are sticking in my mind that seem like they are are helpful guardrails. Uh, one is a, a line of Saint John Chrysostom, uh, who lived man a long, long time ago, and he says something like, "This is the rule of, of most perfect Christianity. It's most exact definition: seeking the common good. For nothing can so make." someone an imitator of Christ as caring for his neighbor. And I think that sense of the common good is maybe a helpful guardrail in avoiding uh, nationalism as we're Christians. We only care about people who are like us in our nation, that sense of common good. And the common is as broad as possible. People who are like me, sure, but people who are different from me, yeah. People who share my walk of life, but also people who I have to learn empathy and sort of you know step inside their experience uh, or care about them, even if I have a hard time understanding them. And the other line is one from Bell Hooks, who once upon a time we talked about here. Um, she says, how do we hold people accountable for wrongdoing and yet at the same time remain in touch with their humanity enough to believe in their capacity to be transformed? And to me, that's an important piece. That, that means there's going to be time when we may disagree with somebody else's take on you know public policy question and to be able to say it's because of my faith that I think this is the right way to go but if I'm able to see the other person as both human worthy of dis, you know respect and dignity as they are and also that if it turns out that I really am right in the big scheme of things that they're able to be transformed rather than like dehumanizing them as just some troll we should mm-hmm. get rid of. And also an openness, maybe there's things I need to learn as well. How can I mean be soft enough, pliable enough that if there's ways God needs to shape or transform me, I'm open to that as well. And that, that, that dance, that tension seems important to me so that we don't just assume I've got all the answers. If only everybody would agree with me, maybe there's places where I need to learn, but also uh, where I'm convinced uh, this is the right thing to do. This is the right stand to take that the people who we, we stand in tension with or in opposition to are also humans beloved of God as well. And when I think about like in the early church's witness, St. Paul is one of those really good examples. Here's someone who is dead set opposed to the Christian movement and is transformed and becomes one of the loudest advocates and supporters of uh, Christianity uh, in the early church because the early church is willing to say, here's somebody who was our enemy and we, we believe in his capacity to be, to, to be transformed. Um, that changed everything in a, in a sense. Mm-hmm. Are there any other final sort of guideposts we want to offer for how we navigate being Christians in a public world um, while avoiding where the dragons are? I think you, you kind of touched on this in what you were just saying. The humility to recognize that we may be wrong. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, as much as we want to believe that we are right. And I know I, I do the same thing. Uh, with some of my viewpoints and, th- and you know and items of theology um, to recognize that as much as we feel like we we can quote this scripture and that scripture to prove our point and m- maybe we might be wrong mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. A- and that's that's okay because there's grace mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and there's mercy and there's forgiveness for when we are wrong um, even if we may not receive that from fellow christians we know that jesus grants that to us mm-hmm. um so as strong as as strongly as we might feel about a particular issue to realize you know there are other opinions on this and maybe 
maybe they have some truth to them as well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And if we can hold whatever positions or convictions we have strongly, but in ways that don't lead us to act like jerks, mm-hmm. that I mean that there's something positive in that too. That like when we can interact yeah. in, there, that becomes a, a modeling point for the rest of the world too. That you can be strongly opposed to somebody else's position and also not be a jerk in your interactions that that has a a a power to it a persuasive power as Mm -hmm. well as you know uh, you know to to echo jesus words like the 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 watching world will know that we're his followers by the way we love not by our rightness i mean like and that's uncomfortable in a polarized culture like ours that tends to assume it's your rightness and lining up on x or y or z position that defines you know, proper orthodoxy or Christianity. And Jesus does not seem to be nearly as interested in that as we might want him to be. And I think along those lines, it's that holding, remembering that you are a beloved child of God. And so is the person you're talking to. Yeah. You know, whoever they are, they are also a beloved child of God and you should treat them as such. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, just this morning uh, on, as we're talking about all the perils of social media, it was on social media that a colleague uh, in another tradition shared a quote of Henry Nouwen. It's almost like all these circles are sort of coming together here. A line of Nouwen that says uh, that praying is to listen to the voice of the one who calls us beloved and to learn that voice excludes no one. Um, mm-hmm. Like that's not only, man, that's Henry Nouwen, um, but that's also sort of that awareness of if, if I can, hear and believe and trust my own belovedness, even when other people don't agree with me, but also then to say, oh, and the people who I don't like and disagree with, God also views them as beloved. And our calling then is as people who are each beloved of God, how do we find ways to seek the common good of all, even, even when we don't uh, get along too, too well in the moment? That, that's a difficult thing, but like that's the vision. And maybe that's as much as we can say to conclude a series like this is that's the vision. It's going to look like a bunch of different things. And yeah, avoid the dragons of just yelling angry things into the void on social media or assuming if only we Christians had more power and made ourselves an empire, we'd fix it all. No, but how do we, how do we see ourselves as beloved and to see that God's call of beloved includes everybody else as well? So sounds like we're ready to head on to other ventures and maybe a little bit more lighthearted fare after some deep dives and some difficult thorny conversation over the last month or so. Uh, so we hope you'll join us next time for a brand new series and uh, some good summer conversation here on Crazy Faith Talk. Yeah. Hi.